Well, today we are going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And this is the story of the rich young ruler. If you're a Christian, you've probably had one of those moments in your life where you're talking with someone who's not a Christian and you feel compelled to tell them the truth about Jesus and how to inherit eternal life. Maybe you're having a good conversation with them and you just don't know how to bridge that conversation to the gospel. But what would you do if they then came out and said, you know, I'd actually like to be saved. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Softball toss, right? You'd hit it out of the park. Well, in our text today, this is exactly the question that gets asked of Jesus. But how will he respond? Let's dive into the text and see. This is the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god and the disciples were amazed at his words but jesus said to them again Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, 
This is a story that's told in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And from each of these, we pick up that this young man is both rich and a ruler, most likely of a local synagogue. But before we dive into the story more, I want to remind us of the text just before this one. Do you remember the point of last Sunday's text? Jesus said what? Verse 15. He said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We learned that what Jesus meant there was that to enter the kingdom, we must become like children. We must come to him like children. Helpless, hopeful, fully dependent on God's grace to be saved. We must come knowing that we bring nothing to the table. We must come empty-handed. Remember that? Well, right on the heels of that truth that Jesus just taught, in steps this guy, rich, fully dependent on himself and his accomplishments. That's what we're meant to see from the starting line here. This is different to what Jesus just commended in children. It's a contrast. In the book of Revelation, Jesus rebukes the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. And he says this. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you see that? I'm rich. I need nothing. All the while, not realizing their spiritual bankruptcy. With that in mind, let's look again at our text. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice this. On the surface, this looks like an amazing opportunity, doesn't it? The man runs to Jesus. There's urgency there. He kneels. There's even reverence. He asks the question of all questions. Maybe the most important question in the entire universe. He's concerned with his eternal destiny. What must I do to inherit eternal life? All right. Now, what would you do at this point if asked that question? If you're like me, you'd be giddy with excitement. And you probably start sharing the gospel. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Let me tell you. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. If you're really Baptist, maybe at this point you'd pull out a gospel tract. 
Here you go, man. This will tell you everything that you need to know. Now, I'm not saying that either of those responses are bad for the record. But that's not what Jesus does, is it? Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What? Come on, Jesus! You struck out! Why didn't you share the four spiritual laws or the bridge or the Romans road? Why didn't you share the gospel? Simply put, because this man wasn't ready to hear it yet. If you've never heard of Randy Newman, no, not the guy who writes songs for Pixar, but the author. I can't recommend him highly enough. He wrote a book called Questioning Evangelism. And no, not questioning if we should share the gospel. We should, but how to use questions in evangelism. He notes that over half the time Jesus gets questioned, he doesn't answer. And one of the most frequent of his non-answers, so to speak, is answering with a question. That's exactly what he does here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? See, Jesus knew that while this was a genuine question, unlike the Pharisees before, this man needed to first be woken up. He really wanted to engage this guy in a real conversation. He wasn't going to let this man deal in cliches. See, he knew that the man was arrogant and self-reliant. He knew the man, even in asking the question, believed that he was already in and good enough. We'll see that in the next couple of verses. So Jesus wants to wake him up to a real conversation, force him to wrestle with reality, help him to see that he wasn't, in fact, in or good enough. Notice this. Even in how he asks the question, the rich young ruler is revealing his misunderstanding. Notice the verb here. This is so important. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's said that there are two kinds of religion in this world. Religions of do and a religion of done. Am I saved by what I do? or by what someone else has done. Again, this is the difference between the gospel of grace and something that's not the gospel at all. When we believe that we're saved by what we do, good works or being good enough or going to church enough, if we believe that, we'll ask the same question. What must I do? How good is good enough? 
But if we know the true gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we know that we come like a child, remember? Empty-handed, knowing that the only way we can be saved is through what Jesus has done. He came and lived a perfect life, died in our place on the cross, paying fully and completely for our sins. He said, it is finished there on the cross. He was buried and rose again three days later, defeating sin, Satan, and death on our behalf. Done. This guy doesn't understand that. He believes in do. He still believes that he's good. So look where Jesus starts. First, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, do you really know what you're saying here? Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 Make it clear that there is no one who does good. This is what Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3. This man calls Jesus good, and Jesus asks, Do you know what you're saying? Really? To call me good is to call me God. Is that what you really mean? And in the same stroke, he's also pointing this man to God, setting God rightly as the standard of goodness. Think about this. If you're comparing yourself or anyone else, for that matter, to other human beings, it may be easy to think that you're good. But when God is the standard, no one is good. Look at Isaiah's response when encountering God. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, it says this. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And look here at verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations say undone there. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you see God clearly, you immediately realize that you are not clean. Jesus is laying the foundation here. He's pointing the man to God as the standard of goodness. Then, look at what he says next, verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. 
Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. When it comes to the Ten Commandments, they're broken down into two categories, or tables. The first table, or the first five commandments, all deal with our vertical relationship with God. But the second table, or the last five commandments, deal with our horizontal relationships with one another. Notice that Jesus asks him about the second table first. How are your horizontal relationships? And this is brilliant. Jesus is setting a trap for this guy's pride. Look at his response. Verse 20, and he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, if you've ever studied the Sermon on the Mount, you know that this is probably not the case. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, takes these commandments and shows that we've all broken them because our hearts are involved. But let's just give this guy the benefit of the doubt for a second. Let's at least agree with him that externally he's kept the last five commandments. Jesus has him right where he wants him. And this next verse is beautiful. Jesus knows that this guy is a sinner, even though he doesn't yet. And look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus looked at him and loved him. What an amazing statement. Do you know that Jesus loves sinners, even the self-righteous. He knows what's truly in this guy's heart, and he looks at him and loves him. But what does Jesus do? In today's culture, if you love someone, you stay quiet. You say, you do you, I'm okay, you're okay. You don't rock the boat if you really love someone. You don't expose their sin. You tolerate. No, you agree with. No, you even celebrate their sin, leaving them comfortable on their way to hell believing that they're good with God. Again, that's not what Jesus does, is it? <laughs> Check out this jujitsu move that Jesus does here. He says, okay, I'll roll with you. You claim that you've kept the last five commandments. But let's start back at the top. What's the first commandment? Exodus chapter 20. Verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Kaboom! Do you see that? You shall have no other gods before me. What was this man's God? What was it that gave this man his identity and value and worth? Money. Possessions. Things. God calls that idolatry. Jesus loves this man. And so he graciously exposes his sin. He loves him so much that he refuses to let this man go on assuming his own righteousness. He's like a doctor who knows this man has a cancerous tumor that's going to kill him. And so he, he doesn't just tell the man that he's good to go. He exposes his sinful heart. Now, I want to be clear here. The command Jesus gives to this man isn't a universal one. It's a specific one that may be specific to some of us too, but it may not. Jesus tells this man to go sell all that he has and give it to the poor. This isn't a command to all of us this morning. Unless money and possessions have become your God. Are they where you derive value and worth and identity? Do they occupy all or most of your thought life? Are they what you worship? What is first in your life. You see, this isn't about money. It's about idolatry. It's about the heart. Now, I love what Vodi Bakum says. He says, God is not against you having things. He's against things having you. Do you see that? In asking him to give up everything, and I want us to see this. In asking him to give up everything, Jesus isn't asking something that he's not willing to do himself. Look how Paul describes Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus gave everything so that our hearts might be right with God. In his book, King's Cross, Tim Keller writes these amazing words. He says, and Jesus would say, I am going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. I am giving it all away. Why? For you. Now, get ready. I'm going to ask you to give away everything to follow me. If I gave away my big all to get you, 
Can you give away your little all to follow me? I won't ask you to do anything I haven't already done. I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now, you need to give away yours to get me. See, Jesus knows true life. He is true life. And he knows that anything that's blocking us from him is worth giving up. In the opening of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, which he first penned at age 26, he says these famous words. He says, Nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. Do you see what Jesus has done here with this man? He immediately pointed to this man's knowledge of God. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Do you really understand God and who I am? No, he didn't. Then he exposes his lack of self-knowledge. You think you're good, but your heart is bankrupt. You need to know God, and you need to know yourself. And so I'll ask you this morning, do you know yourself? Do you understand that like this man in our text, none of us have kept God's law? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you understand that no one is good? Second, do you know God? Understand that he hasn't kept himself hidden. He's revealed himself to us clearly through his word and through his son Jesus. If you don't know God, you can know him today. He's not only made a way for you to know him, but more importantly, to be his child. Know yourself and turn from sin. Know God and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Unfortunately, In verse 22, we read this. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We don't know what happened after this moment, but what we read here is incredibly sad, isn't it? This man chose his own treasure above the treasure pearl of great price. He chose money over the Messiah, junk over Jesus. This is reality. Not everyone will leave their idols to follow Jesus. 
You can share every reason and clear argument for why someone should believe in Christ. You can ask the right questions and even lovingly expose someone's heart for what it is. This doesn't always lead to someone following Jesus. Some people will run to Jesus. They may even fall down at his feet. They may ask the right questions and keep most of the commandments externally. And yet, still cling to gold as their God. That's the hard truth. Not surprisingly, the disciples were dumbfounded in this moment. And Jesus knew it. Look at verses 23 through 26. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Some people try to soften these words by saying, Well, historically, there were different named gates around Jerusalem, and one of them was named the Eye of the Needle. They then mentioned that to get a camel through it, it had to take off its pack and go under on its knees. A position of lowliness and humility. That'll preach! But it's just not true. There never was such a gate. And that's not Jesus' point here. Jesus' point is that it's impossible humanly speaking. The disciples caught what he said clearly, thus their response. Jesus, then who can be saved if that's true? Who can be saved? And Maybe that's how some of you feel living here in Santa Cruz County. You look around you and realize we're swimming upstream here. People around us seem to have everything. And they don't want anything to do with God. They're self-made and self-reliant. They even believe that they're pretty good people. They help the homeless and save the planet. People coming to Jesus here is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. Humanly speaking, it is. But look at these glorious next words. Friends, be encouraged by the words of Jesus here. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. John Piper, in speaking to missionaries, notes this here. He says, this is one of the most encouraging missionary conversations in the Bible. What missionary has not looked on his work and said, it's impossible, 
to which Jesus agrees. Yes, with men, it is impossible. No mere man can liberate another man from the enslaving power of the love of money. The rich young ruler went away sorrowful because of the bondage to things that cannot be broken by any man. With man, it is impossible. And therefore, missionary work, which is simply liberating the human heart from bondage to allegiances other than Christ, is impossible with men. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God, and therein lies an incomparable incentive for missionary service. He then goes on to tell this story about how Noel, his wife, and him went to this missions conference called Urbana in 1967. And he says this. He says, I recall how John Alexander, head of InterVarsity, said that when he was young, he thought, if predestination is true, I would never become a missionary. But then he added, but now... After years in the field, I say, if predestination is not true, I could never become a missionary. If God were not in charge in this affair, doing the humanly impossible, the missionary task would be hopeless. Who but God can raise the spiritually dead and give them an ear for the gospel? Acts 16, verse 14. The great biblical doctrines of unconditional election and predestination unto sonship and irresistible grace in the preaching of Christ are mighty incentives to venture forth into a Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or tribal culture where people seem hard as nails against the preaching of the gospel. Do you see what great humility and confidence this gives us in our calling as missionaries to this city and to this county? In humility, we must realize that humanly speaking, it's impossible for us to change hearts in Santa Cruz. But with God, all things are possible. We can plant seeds. We can even water them. But God must give the growth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so we pray. We look on people and love them. We faithfully share the gospel, pointing them to Jesus. We help them see themselves, and we help them see God. <laughs> In classic form, Peter quickly responds to Jesus. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. It's almost as if he's saying, But, 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 but we're good, right, Jesus? We're not like this sad guy who just walked away. We've left everything, right? <laughs> and look at how Jesus both comforts and encourages them. Verse 29 through 31, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, there's a real cost to following me. You will make sacrifices. Again, think of the sacrifices of missionaries here. Leaving house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands for Jesus' sake in the gospel. Do you see Jesus' promise here? Any losses that you incur for following Jesus will be made up by Christ. And not just made up, multiplied. Jesus doesn't just say repaid, does he? He says a hundredfold. And I want us to notice that his promise is both now in the present tense and eternal. One commentator says, this isn't pie-in-the-sky theology. It's pie now. But Jesus isn't talking about physical material blessings. What does he mean here? Well, it's possible that he means if you leave your earthly family to serve Christ, he'll make up for it in your spiritual family, the church giving you spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. That's true. It's possible that that's what he means. But I think that what he really means is that he himself will make up for every loss. Again, Piper is helpful here. He says, if you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back a hundred times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm comradeship of a brother, you get back 100 times the warmth and camaraderie from Christ. If you give up the sense of at-homeness you had at your house, you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. Isn't that what Jesus is saying to prospective missionaries? Just this. I promise to work for you and to be for you so much that you will not be able to speak of having sacrificed anything. That's the way Hudson Taylor took it. Because at the end of his 50 years of missionary labor in China, he said, I never made a sacrifice. Friends, at the end of the day, Christ is all we need. That's what the rich young ruler didn't understand. He saw his possessions as the most important thing in life. To rip away those would be to rip away his life. But Jesus knew better. And he knows better today. He will provide all you need, most significantly in himself. 
If you're here today and you're not a Christian, give your life to him today. It's the most joyous, satisfying, important decision you could ever make. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. If you are a Christian, the call here is exactly the same. Keep giving your life to him, trusting him with everything. Ask him to expose any idols that have gripped your heart. Know yourself and know God. And like this man, know that Jesus looks on you and loves you. Let's pray.